This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt jolly a bumper episode of the podcast today because there's just so much going on we hear from sarah phelps the screenwriter who's written the brand new Christmas drama that everyone's going to be watching, A Very British Scandal. You remember A Very English Scandal? It was Hugh Grant playing Jeremy Thorpe and the dog got shot and everyone ended up in court. Uh, A Very British Scandal is all about Margaret Argyle and her sensational uh, divorce trial from her husband, the Duke of Argyle. And some very saucy photos. Sarah's a lot of fun. So uh, we've got, we thought we'd include that chat on the podcast. We've also asked the question, is the party over for Boris Johnson? As the Lib Dems are suggesting, uh, Steve Swinford takes us inside the minds of number 10. We asked Charles Walker, Tory MP, how long Boris Johnson's got to get his act together. And are some people who've been in Downing Street when a PM's had to pack their bags and find out what that's like. And in a moment, we'll have our columnist panel. But first... Let's find out what we learned this week. Well, it was all about parties this week, and who better to kick off party week than Dominic Raab? The Deputy Prime Minister popping up on Sky News at quarter past seven. He said a significant number in hospital. How many? Uh, I think 250 the last time I looked. 250 people in hospital at quarter past seven? What was it 20 minutes later on BBC Breakfast? I think we've got um, uh, nine people... Uh, who are in hospital. So from 250 to just nine in 20 minutes, a 96% drop. Extraordinary figures. At that rate, there'll be no COVID by lunchtime. Oh, hang on, here he comes again, now on ITV's Good Morning Britain. So it's 10 at the moment. From nine to 10, that's up one in an hour. That is what statisticians call exponential dope. Meanwhile, Downing Street unveiled its new Situation Centre, based on the one in the White House. It's basically just seven desks facing two big screens, one showing the gov.uk website, the other a live TV feed. So in the American version, where Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton once sat watching the moment Bin Laden was killed, in the British version you've got screens showing how many people have got Covid, and footage of Andrew Bridgen on the BBC News Channel facing tough questions about his latest nonsense. I haven't seen an arse under so much pressure since Gina Cola Delangelo got goosed on Matt Hancock's CCTV. Alok Sharma revealed what he got up to on foreign trips. Well, I can tell you that my nostrils took quite a battering. Annalise Dodds doth protest too much. Here is not a 
killer. The election-losing Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey was caught posing for a photo, an actual photo of a lockdown-breaking party with about a dozen people. Personally, I think it was nice that Sean Bailey invited all of the people who voted for him to attend his party. In fact, there are so many photos of Tories having parties during lockdown, we can only assume someone in the cabinet has shares in Snappy Snap. Marcus Fish wins the hotly contested prize for stupidest MP of the week, opposing Plan B COVID measures by telling the BBC... We are not a papers please society. This is not Nazi Germany. Okay. He seemed to think that having to open an app on his phone to see Mother Goose at the Octagon Theatre was just like Crystal Nut. But the main thing this week is even as we face lockdown by stealth, missing family, a collapsing economy and the threat of more months of misery, nobody, absolutely nobody, is facing a worse Christmas now than Boris Johnson. Uh, yes, uh, Mr Speaker. Wibbled wobble, wibble wobble. Right, that is what we learned this week. Coming up on today's episode, is the party really over for Boris Johnson as the Lib Dems are trying to make out? An absolutely stellar panel of people who know what is really going on in the Tory party. We've got Stephen Swinford, the political editor of the Times, taking us inside number 10's current thinking. Senior Tory MP Charles Walker on the mood on the back benches. Plus, James Johnson, who is Theresa May's pollster in number 10, and Gavin Barwell, who is her chief of staff as well, on what happens when the party is really over. And Kate Fall, deputy chief of staff to David Cameron, when he realised the game was up and he had to leave Downing Street. So that's all coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, it's our columnist panel. And on Friday, it's James Forsyth and Melanie Reid. So, uh, James, how serious is are things this morning for Boris Johnson, do you think? I think the first thing to say is that this is a much worse result than the Cheshire and Amersham by-election defeat. Uh, Cheshire and Amersham, you know, you could blame it on local anger about HS2. There was one particular policy that was clearly um, costing the Tories votes there, and that was planning. And it was also an obvious seat for tactical voting. The Liberal Democrats were a clear second, uh, and it had voted Remain in, in the referendum. Uh, North Shropshire isn't any of those things. Uh, it, it is a heavily leave voting seat where the Lib Dems have come from third place to win it. And I think what will be worrying Tories is that if they can lose in North Shropshire, it is a sign that they can lose uh, anywhere in a by-election. And I think it is, is a sign of how angry their own base is, how bad the national political environment is for them. Uh, and also, I think it is also a sign that uh, that Brexit is not no longer acting as a, as a floor beneath which the Tories could not fall. The fact that such a heavily leave voting seat was prepared to vote for the Lib Dems, who, remember, um, fought the last general election on a platform simply rejoining the European Union, uh, is, I think, a sign that the, the Tories can't rely on Brexit to hold together their, their, their electoral coalition anymore. It's interesting, Bernie, because I spoke to Ed Davey a few minutes ago and he, he was saying that actually maybe it does mean they can go into some of those areas. I was asking about the, the West Country, which is where I'm from and know best. You, vast swathes of it used to be yellow uh, and, and Brexit seemed to break that sort of love affair between the Lib Dems and, uh, and large parts of sort of Somerset, Devon and Cornwall. And maybe enough time has passed or maybe Boris Johnson is not Mr Brexit anymore and so there's a route back in for them. That, that, that is why there is that sense of, is there a bigger significance to this? I mean, 
you know, the, the, with a time subscription, you can get to look at our inbox. On this story, it's red hot. You know, it's 1.9 comments, I think. And what's quite common is a sense, just to sort of quote them, sort of, you know, they're sick of the, what they describe as the foam-speckled rightists. They want rid of them, and they want to reclaim the old Conservative Party. And, and that's why I, I wonder if there's something brand-changing happening here. You know, this sense that um, what we thought, what we've, what we've become, we don't really like. And, and um, you know, let, let's, uh, let, let's, uh, let's try and find out who we, who we really should be, not, not who we seem to have uh, emerged after Brexit. Um, obviously, many you're you're in Scotland. Have you ever have you seen much sign? Because the Lib Dems again used to be quite strong in Scotland, and much like the rest of the country, since their their time in coalition, they've really struggled to stage any sort of comeback. They've got a new leader now, whose whose name escapes me. You might be able to help me. But is there any sign of the Lib Dems staging any sort of comeback north of the border? Uh, there's everything is so dominated by the SNP, and because of the because there is this separate this huge separate issue, which is unionism. And, and everyone has banded behind, well, most people have banded behind the Conservatives to try and, and be the pro-union party. So there hasn't been the same, uh, you know, the, the, the Liberal and Labour have been, have been silenced very much because it's been all about the Tories fighting back against the SNP. So no, I don't think there's a, there's a correlation there. I mean, we might see it now, this might this might liven things up, but uh, no, I, I think I think this is an English thing at the moment. And I suppose um, uh, Alex Cole Hamilton was the uh, was the name that escaped me. The, yeah, the, the yeah, yeah. And, well, and I suppose I, part of the problem <laughs> that the Lib Dems have is that sort of politically, on social and economic policy, the Lib Dems are probably quite similar to the SNP. Their main point of difference is. Uh, on uh, the union and actually union, you know yeah. other other parties the conservatives probably do a better job of banging the drum on that one yeah they they're more thuggish about it yes yeah 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 no it's interesting to see uh how that uh, plays out well let's let's move um slightly uh away from the 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 the, the by-election result because we'll come back to that um, i'm sure uh, later um james how problematic is the possible or the sort of almost Christmas cancellation by stealth uh, that seems to be going on? I think it's, I think it is very bad, very difficult for Boris Johnson because I mean, people are fed up and I think it also raises this question, which is you look at all the people cancelling their, their, their meals out and the like, you know, are you going to compensate the hospitality industry? Uh, that that is obviously something the government has not yet uh, committed to doing, uh, and also I think I think it also creates a sense of you know people feel like oh if you think back and uh, to the Hartlepool by election when everyone was saying oh look at the Tories winning more seats over Labour this proves that the 2019 election result wasn't a freak it's part of a wider political realignment. Why? Why were the Tories riding so high then? Because people thought, ah, oh, they're getting, you know, the people thought they were getting their vaccines and they were going to get their lives back. And what has happened? What people are now being faced with is the fact that that that, that you know, COVID hasn't gone away. Um, indeed, if you speak to some people in in the health world, they they, they think the NHS is going to come under the greatest pressure it has come under at any point in this crisis in the next few weeks. And this, and I think I think this this is eroding the mood. And also in terms of Boris Johnson and his position, if you look at that rebellion on Tuesday night, it's not just the size of it that should alarm him. 
But the composition, if you look at those people who were MPs in 2019, more than half of them have publicly endorsed Boris Johnson at leadership contest. The, 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 these restrictions are severing Boris Johnson from the very people who put him in number 10 in the first place. And I suppose that's the that's the the um, the, the problem is it's such a broad church you are opposed to it. It's difficult to sort of pick them off with with other stuff. I wonder, Melanie, whether it's also a sign of uh, maybe Boris Johnson's learning this lesson the hard way. That actually you go up in the polls when you deliver things successfully, and you go down in the polls uh, when you don't. And one of his big challenges, as and when we get to the next election, is going to be what is he delivered aside from COVID, but on all the other promises too. Yeah, I mean, it's where are his big, big sort of moral and political um, uh, statements, and where where is he taking us? Um, I, I love James. I love the comment in the, James's line in his his column this morning about it's always dangerous for political leaders to forget to dance with the one that brung you, and and uh, you know he 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 does appear rather friendless. He's 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 losing everybody. And um, if he hasn't, is he, if, if he isn't able to turn to the electorate and say, look, I, 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 I've got you this, I've got you that. Instead, he faces these enormous bear, bear traps. I mean, his path is strewn with the obstacles of inflation, you know, potentially 6% inflation and a 6 million people on the NHS waiting list. So he, he, he hasn't got a lot going from at the moment, I think. He, 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 the, the Christmas break will never be more happily desired i think <laughs> and james actually just touching on some of those things that, that many mentioned there you know inflation hospital waiting lists um you know the, the possible economic impact of people not going out and spending this christmas those are big issues landing on the promises there but also on rishi sunak's desk had it not been for the uh <laughs> the prime minister's best efforts to dominate uh, the news agenda and the by-election it's not been a brilliant week for rishi sunak has it yeah, I think this is there's always the the problem that the government is in is it, it is not shutting things down. So its line is we don't need to provide uh, financial compensation to businesses because we're not closing them. That was the rationale for it last time. But when you have a chief medical officer stand up on national television and basically say to people, look, think really carefully about which events you want to go to and which you don't. And people know that if they go out catch COVID now, they're going to spend Christmas in isolation away from their families, then, you know, inevitably people are going to cancel. And that's what you're seeing. And I think the question then becomes, what support does the government provide? And I think this, this, I think the alarming thing is, in terms of the public finances, you know, the, the COVID support measures were, were designed on the on a kind of assumption that this was a one-off event. And they ended up running much longer than anyone expected. Uh, and you know, if they have to come back, that is another big blow to the public finances. And it was, I was quite struck at quite how quickly this little slightly beefed up Labour operation went for Rishi Sunak yesterday, just because he was in California. Um, we discussed uh, yesterday think... how that just, yeah, California is just a sexy, if he was in Dusseldorf, we might not have been quite so excited. But the fact he was in California, albeit on a work trip, he wasn't on holiday, but that, that sort of, you know, they leapt on that and, we, you know, that, the, the, they seem to move a bit more quickly, Labour, in sort of trying to target uh, Rishi Sunak too. I think it's also a, a Labour worry that uh, if they all, they concentrate all their fire on Boris Johnson and then the Tories decide to change leader, but, you know, that, that, that leaves them back at square one. So I think, I think you will see Labour trying to do this more, trying to attack 
not just Johnson, but but his possible successors too. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Because they could get rid of Boris Johnson and then end up with someone uh, better in the eyes of voters. Um, mm. Melody, you've picked out. Let's try and uh, end on a slightly positive note. There's not much really calls mm. for for positivity, but you've picked out this story uh, showing that South Africa is increasingly optimistic about that the, their Omicron case numbers have passed the peak already. And this is something I think that um, uh, Chris Whitty's touched on as well. That the Omicron might be awful, but it might be it might come and go quite quickly. Well, the, yeah, and of course, this, this this very much is linked into to Boris Johnson's gamble, which is that if he can protect jobs and social lives, and and uh, his political ref- fortunes will revive. And you know, things are not looking so good. There's a time story from South Africa that cases appear to have peaked. They've, in in the, the Johannesburg area, they've gone down this week from a peak of 11,000. They're down in the 9,000s now. And the deaths are indicated to be lower than previous waves. So mm. the scientists are cautiously confident. And they use this great, the, the, the chief scientist uh, used this great uh, expression um, that, that it's gone a bit like boiling milk. You know, it's come up with a great surge, up like a rocket, and it seems to be going down just as quickly. They haven't seen this happen before, and and they're they're you know everyone's toes and fingers crossed. I would say worldwide <laughs> that uh, this is um, it's it's mutating into a less serious disease, and it you know it could get it could get um, hopefully it could get our everyone's spring and uh, make everyone's spring a bit happier. I suppose I think, I don't, just finally, there's this poll that shows that only 10% say they've avoided going to a pub or restaurant, uh, which they would have otherwise gone to because of uh, Omicron. 16% say they've avoided a Christmas party. Um, e- either, of, either of you cutting back on your, your festive shenanigans? Me, yes. I mean, I, I, I don't know who you have been talking to for their poll, but it certainly wasn't anyone I know. I mean, <laughs> I was lots quite surprised. of people. I thought it was much. I thought basically everyone I've spoken to is behold. Yeah. What about you, James? I, I, I'm very surprised at those numbers. Nearly everyone I know has, has, has cut back because they want to spend Christmas with their families. Melanie Reid and James Forsyth, though, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, is the party really over? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Owen Patterson is a consultant to Randox Laboratories, which pays him £100,000 a year. But an inquiry by the Standards Commissioner found that he broke the rules on lobbying three times. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely no, no, no question. I think, you know, what we've seen, it's a sort of, um, you know, Westminster storm in a teacup, if I may say so. There's a debate today. Unfortunately, I can't be there because I'm, I've had a long-standing engagement up here. Last night's vote has created a certain amount of controversy. I fear last night's debate conflated the individual case with the general concern. Do you think that Owen Patterson was guilty or not? No question that he had... Uh, fallen foul of the rules on, on paid advocacy as far as I could see from the report. Shake that. Uh, uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. Hands up anybody who's been to Peppa Pig World. Not enough. I was, well, it's, it's, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. I've just seen reports on Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh... Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas party? Also furious to see that clip. And Mr. Speaker, I apologize. I apologize unreservedly. But I repeat, Mr. Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that and that no COVID rules were broken, and that is what. I have been repeatedly assured. For weeks now, he claims that no rules were broken. He claims he didn't know what was happening in his own house last Christmas. I don't believe him. His MPs don't believe him, and nor do the British public. Therefore, I give public notice that Morgan, Helen Margaret Lillian, is duly elected as the Member of Parliament for the North Shropshire constituency. Tonight, the people of North Shropshire have spoken on behalf of the British people. They've said loudly and clearly, Boris Johnson, the party is over. Shake that. So, is the party really over for Boris Johnson? In a moment, we'll hear from some people who've been in number 10 for Theresa May and David Cameron when it became clear the party was over. But let's try and get a sense of what the mood is in number 10 this morning. Stephen Swinford is the political editor of The Times and joins me now. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So um, I'll tell you what, Steve, while we've got you there, let's just pick our way through what we know if people haven't been paying full attention yet. Overnight, the Liberal Democrats took the North Shropshire seat. The Tories used to have a 23,000 vote majority. 
Now uh, the uh, the Lib Dems have almost uh, a margin of almost 6,000. I spoke to Ed Davey, the leader of the Lib Dems, a bit earlier, and this was his message to the Prime Minister. Well, I think it's a message from the people of North Shropshire. I think they sent in the first uh, email or first letter of no confidence. And uh, if you're Graham Brady, the uh, chair of the 1922 Select Committee, you've just had a, uh, an email of, of no confidence in the Prime Minister. Uh, so that was Ed Davies' message. Uh, poor old Oliver Dowd, the Conservative Party chairman, was the one who was sent out to try and uh, hose this one down. He told Times Radio that voters in North Shropshire had given the vo- government a kicking. Well, people are clearly fed up in North Shropshire. They'd given us a kicking and they wanted to send a message. And I want to say to you as chairman of the Conservative Party, we've heard that message loud and clear. So uh, they've heard the message loud and clear, Steve Swinford. What are they going to do about it? That is the key question, Matt. And that is exactly what Oliver Dowden and no one else in Cabinet is able to say. So everyone acknowledges there are problems, that there is a massive issue here they need to address. Tory MPs are obviously absolutely livid this morning and they're kind of talking about letters and that kind of stuff. But realistically, there's not going to be a leadership challenge in the near future, possibly as we get closer to the next election, if things keep going wrong. But in, in, in government and in cabinet, they're saying that there needs to be a change to the number 10 operation and particularly there needs to be a change to the whipping operation, that the whips have lost the party. But we've had this before. We've had wholesale clear outs of advisors. We've had a reshuffle recently and we've still got the same problems. And the, the big issue for Boris Johnson Matt, is that I'm not sure how he changes his political fortunes. So we're heading into a new year, which is going to be dominated by COVID. It's going to be dominated by the NHS, so possibly more restrictions. Then in April, we've got tax rises. Then we've got inflation on top of that. And you've got a drag on living standards that comes with that. So you've got all of these things coalescing. So where is the kind of light? How are things going to improve? And I'm not quite clear how that happens at the moment. Um, there's some Tory MPs I've spoken to this week, Steve, who were saying, you know, Boris Johnson needs to change. Uh, one person I spoke to said he needs to get a big, you know, a big beast, an enforcer. He needs a Willie Whitelaw, a Peter Mandelson, an Alistair Campbell uh, figure. Is that... Is that realistic? I mean, that was supposed to be Dan Rosenfeld's job, wasn't it? Coming as new chief, chief of staff. Is part of the problem that, that, that Boris Johnson, because he's a sort of one-man band, uh, and, you know, the support, the, 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 the band behind him are a, you know, much reduced uh, set of figures, nobody's there really to challenge him. If anybody does challenge him, they gradually find their way eased out of the room. So if you want to carry on working in number 10 with him, then, then you, you basically have to go along with what he says. There is a look. I was speaking to a cabinet minister this morning that was saying that Boris needs a hard man. He needs someone who's going to stand up to him and say no to him and, and act with authority, and that will change things and improve things. He needs a, a really tough lieutenant. But I mean, there is a certain sense of deja vu when you hear that because obviously he did have that. He had Dominic Cummings, who was an authority beyond authorities in number 10, and look how that ended, ended up. It ended up in total chaos, dysfunction, and infighting. So Is that really the solution here? I'm not sure it is. I think what he probably needs to do is far fewer self-inflicted errors, right? That's where they've got to kind of, there are so many events that are going to shape this premiership from COVID to inflation to outside economic forces, that actually they just in the short term need to stop screwing up. And senior Tory strategists I'm talking to this morning say that they just need to concentrate on trying to, to be a competent government. Just get the basics right. You don't need to be flashy at this stage. You just need to to stop kind of falling foul of your own things. But the other thing that's that's chundering along in the background, Matt, and shows no sign of abating, 
is this Christmas parties issue, which was a significant issue at the drop to by election. The government's approach to that seems pretty extraordinary to me this morning. So the Prime Minister has ordered an inquiry by the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, which is supposed to get to the bottom of whether there was or wasn't a party in Downing Street. But you've had Oliver Dowden do the morning rounds on Times Radio and elsewhere this morning. And he's saying he's confident that that inquiry will completely vindicate the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister himself has said that. Now, if you're Simon Case this morning and you're charged with doing this inquiry, that puts you in pretty difficult waters. You're basically going to be in a position where either you exonerate the Prime Minister and you're accused of overseeing a whitewash because that's what he said you'd do, or you go against the Prime Minister's claims and directly contradict his assertions. So when you've got a Prime Minister prejudging an inquiry that he's ordered into Christmas parties and essentially telling you what the result is, that doesn't look particularly good. And I'm not sure that's going to help allay the concerns of voters either. Steve Swinford, thanks so much for that. Stephen Swinford is the political editor of The Times. Uh, busy day ahead for Steve, uh, trying to get the, the, the sense of the the mood in number 10 and the mood in the Conservative Party. We can we can get a bit of a sense of the mood in the Conservative Party now by speaking to uh, uh, Conservative MP Sir Charles Walker. Morning, Charles. Good morning. Charles. Uh, uh, Charles. No, I'm Good. unmuted Lovely. now. You're unmuted, right. You're unmuted and ready to let rip. How do you feel this morning, Charles? Uh, I'm not surprised that we lost the by-election, put it that way. That, that I think, had already been priced in. But I think uh, I agree with Steve. Talk of imminent leadership challenges is, is, is just talk. There isn't going to be one. Um, why, are you not, why are you not surprised that you managed to lose a seat which had a 23,000 Conservative majority? Uh, well, firstly, it's been an extremely difficult three months for the Prime Minister. I'm not going to deny that. Secondly, there's a huge sense of disquiet and anguish uh, out there amongst the public. We're 20 months into this wretched pandemic. Undoubtedly, Number 10 has made mistakes and, and, and has had missteps. And, and that, that, that was conveyed uh, in the ballot box last night and the count this morning. So do you, you think that the blame for this, for losing this uh, phenomenally safe Conservative seat, lies squarely with the Prime Minister? No, I don't. But I mean, clearly it's been it's been a difficult three months. Look, the Conservative Party has defied political gravity for 11 years. I mean, we should have been losing safe Conservative seats and by-elections in 211, 212, 213 during the coalition. This is just a return to business as usual. It's political gravity reasserting itself. Now, if we go on making forced errors over the next three to six months, nine months, it will become a lot more serious. It's serious now, uh, but it's, it's not at critical level yet. So in my view. Year, the Prime Minister's got a year to sort himself out? I think the Prime Minister has got uh, weeks, months, year to sort himself out. You know, every day it's got to be better than the day before, but not as good as tomorrow, if that makes sense. You've got to perform at your highest level when you're Prime Minister. Um, you, you're making the point that, you know, in the past, sitting governments have lost uh, um, by-elections. The last time the conser a sitting Conservative government was losing uh, by-elections on swings like this was, a, was ahead of the, the uh, 1997 general election mm -hmm. uh, when yeah. you suffered uh, a terrible uh, election result. We were out of power mm -hmm. then for um, more than a decade. So how, how can you be confident that we're not now on that trajectory? Oh, I'm not confident, but what, what I do know for sure, because history will show it, we hadn't had a 20-month pandemic between 92 and 97, had we? We hadn't had 
16 of 20 months in lockdown or virtual lockdown. So I think to draw a comparison like that is one can always draw comparisons, but it's not direct read across. Yeah, but so, but, but, so what you're saying is it could be worse. The people are weary of the pandemic on top of everything else, on top of, you know, the Conservatives have been in government for more than a decade. General weariness, number 10 misfires, missteps, mistakes. Um, uh, th- th- actually, it sounds like you're, you're saying if you put the pandemic on top of that, it could be worse than 97. No, I don't think it could be worse than 97. I'm saying it's not a direct read across. Look, people are cross and angry. I'm cross and angry, fed up. Um, and, that, and that's naturally going to feed through. And when the government of the day makes mistakes, those mistakes are going to be magnified tenfold. People are tired and bored and fed up. And that includes the Member of Parliament for Broxbourne. Have you communicated your tiredness, boredom, anger and fed upness directly to the Prime Minister? Well, I mean, every, look, everybody, I'm not unique in this. I mean, I, I think it's very <laughs> difficult to find any one of your listeners who is, is, is in a joyous and happy and uplifted frame of mind at the moment. People are worried, naturally worried. Inflation's at 5%. The hospitality industry is going to need to be looked after sooner rather than later. People are worried and upset. We shouldn't diminish the scale of the challenge this this country's facing and the challenge that he's facing. And he has made mistakes and needs to take ownership for that. But but it's human to make mistakes. We all do it. Just just finally, Charles Walker, one of your colleagues, Sir Roger Gale, said this morning that um, uh, the Prime Minister's had two strikes already, uh, referring to the vote in the comments, this uh, uh, the, the big rebellion this week, the, the uh, North Shropshire result. He says one more strike and he's out. Do you agree? No. He's got a year, he's got to spend the next year each day being better than the day before, but not as good as the following day is going to be. It's got to be good for the next, it's got to be good for the next year. Charles Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. I, I, hope, I hope you get to cheer up personally a bit more in the next, maybe I'm a little like break it. over Christmas. <laughs> Charles Walker, uh, lovely to speak you. Thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Charles Walker there, Conservative MP. Uh, also, um, he's on the uh, the 1920, he's on the board of the 1922 committee, sort of uh, shop steward of uh, Conservative backbenchers. Good to get here. Boris Johnson's got a year to sort himself out, he says. So that, that strikes me as... Uh, a fairly significant warning to the Prime Minister. But what's it like if you're in number 10 and it suddenly starts becoming clear that your time might be up? Well, let's speak to some people who've been there, done that and got the T-shirt and back their boxes. Uh, Lord Barwell, Gavin Barwell, was Chief of Staff to Theresa May at the end of her premiership. Hi, Gavin. Morning. Uh, James Johnson uh, is now a senior advisor at Keck CNC. Uh, he also does focus groups for us here on Times Radio, uh, but used to run polling and focus groups for Theresa May. Hi, James. Morning. And finally, uh, Baroness Fall, Kate Fall, was Deputy Chief of Staff for David Cameron. Hi, Kate. Hi there. Uh, let's start with you, James, first of all, uh, with your sort of polling hat on. Just put into some context how bad this uh, by-election result is for the Conservatives. Well, it's a, it's a really bad result. I mean, this is the biggest <clears throat> swing away from the Conservatives uh, in a by-election. If you put aside the UK gain in 2014... Uh, since 1993 um, in, in Christchurch, which obviously then led uh, at the next election to a very big Labour win. Now, not saying that that's necessarily going to happen next time, but this is a historic swing. It's definitely something that the Conservatives should be very worried about. Yeah, I mean, it's a phenomenal, the, 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 you know, the historical stats which have been banded around uh, on this, and not least the fact that it was in a, a Brexit-majority constituency for the Lib Dems to win there. That potentially brings into play other seats uh, where the Lib Dems might hope to, to, to come back? 
Absolutely. And I think one thing that's very clear from this result is that, and it's been clear in the polls for a while, actually, is that the sort of the leave remain divide that in Westminster we all like talking about is not really that real for voters anymore. Um, yes, it still is important to uh, decide, you know, people's general views of politicians and so on. But clearly, if that Brexit divide, as views of the Christmas parties and Boris Johnson have in the last few weeks, um, that can override people's Brexit vote. So look, I don't think the Lib Dems are going to suddenly start storming lots of leave seats. And actually, the Lib Dem vote nationally is, is not that strong. Um, but what clearly this does show is that leave voters are a lot more volatile um, than perhaps many Conservatives had assumed they were. Uh, Gavin Barwell, you were there when uh, Theresa May, I mean, she survived losing a majority in a general election, but then uh, there was a sort of death spiral sense towards the end. What is it like being in number 10 when just everything you touch turns to something awful and uh, th there's no way of turning it around? It doesn't matter how many times people say the Prime Minister's got to change, the team's got to change, the operation's got to change. Sometimes you just run out of road. What's that like when you're in number 10 and that's happening? it's not a lot of fun, obviously. Um, I, I think there's a big difference between the situation I was in and where we are now. Uh, you know, we, I came to work for Theresa after that election in 2017 when she'd lost her majority, so she was in a very weak position in Parliament, and there was a fundamental policy issue which split the party right down the middle that we were trying to resolve and ultimately weren't able to resolve. The problem the government has got at the moment is nearly entirely of its own making. You know, if you think back a few weeks ago to the Bexley by-election, we didn't see anything like this kind of swing. So what we've seen is over Owen Paterson, over Christmas parties, over the redecoration of the number 10 flat, the government has shot itself in, it, in the foot and caused these problems for itself. There shouldn't even have been a by-election in North Shropshire if that issue had been handled correctly. So in one way, that is a big problem because it's reputational. It's about the prime minister. It's about how he's running his government. But in another way, as you were just hearing from Charles, if you, he can change that way in which he's running the government, then potentially he's got an opportunity to recover his authority with his MPs and also over time with the general public. So there's a big difference, I think, between the situation Therese was in when I was working for her and the situation that he's in right now. Is it Which is more, com more complicated to sort of correct? Because... Changing a pol if the if the problem is a policy, you can keep tweaking the policy. If the problem is someone's personality and style of work. It's much harder to change someone's personality, isn't it? It, it is hard for people to change, but I would say if you look at Boris Johnson's career, he's demonstrated an ability to reinvent himself several times in the past. So uh, I don't think you should write him off uh, at this point. But the fundamentals you now he has a much stronger parliamentary position than Theresa had when I was working for her. And you know, the, the question really for Tory MPs will be whether they see him still as an election winner. You know, they chose him originally because they thought he was the guy to get Brexit through and that he had an appeal in those red wall seats that they needed to win to win the election. And so the polls over the JJ was talking about them over the last few weeks have shown the government has taken a real hit as a result of this. The question is, once we get through Christmas, will that fade away? Or is this actually a cliff edge, a step change in the Prime Minister and the party standing? And if it is, that's the point at which he's in trouble. Uh, Kate Fall, let's bring you in there. What was it like when you were in number 10 back in uh, 2016 and it became clear that David Cameron was, was on the way out? Well, look, again, a very different circumstance. I mean, that was a major poll. And in the end, 
um, people leave government when people stop wanting to follow you. And normally it's when there is a general election or a poll like the referendum, which was quite unusual, when people said we want to go a different way than where David Cameron asked us to follow. Um, right now, you know, we haven't had that. But what we do see is a massive credibility gap and Boris is losing authority. And also, I think a big problem for him is that um, Gavin's right. You know, he kept the parliamentary party on board through his success at the ballot box. But he also likes to sort of go over their heads, if you like, to the country because he's always had such strong support from the country. And now that looks like it's less strong. The parliamentary party are pretty unhappy, but they also seemingly have a bit more power over him. Um, and I think another problem for, for, for Boris Johnson is just the sort of careless chaos of the way he runs number 10. And both that Gavin and I, who've been at the heart of government, you know, that it does come from the top, the atmosphere at number 10. In the end, all this talk about, oh, and a clean out and a new this and a new that. <laughs> Those don't make any difference whatsoever. If you don't sit down in the morning and all the afternoon and you have your key advisors and your top team around you and you make decisions in a way which, which has authority and where you actually say, this is the right thing to do. We argue through that issue. And by the way, we're not going to read about it every weekend in the paper. <laughs> uh, James Johnson, um, one of the things which is really unsettled MPs, not just the North Shropshire by-election, but just the, the general direction of the uh, Tory polling, both voting intention of the Conservatives, but also Boris Johnson's personal ratings. How serious are those in your assessment? And if you were if you were doing your old job as you did it for Theresa May, if you were doing it for Boris Johnson, what would you be telling him right now? Yeah, well, I think Boris Johnson is central to this. And I think we saw that in, in terms of the coverage of the by-election. I think we see it in Boris Johnson's personal ratings, which have really taken a dive um, as well. It's quite interesting there, listening to Gavin, because um, in, even in those dying days of, uh, of Theresa May's premiership, um, the focus groups on, on Theresa May were actually still quite positive. Um, it was a sort of a grudging respect they had for her determination. Um, uh, I, I'm, quite, I'm quite sure uh, Gavin might have suspected I was making it up occasionally to try and cheer people up. <laughs> um, but it, it really was, uh, it really was um, you know, still quite positive. Now, th that's quite difficult if a leader loses any of, that, uh, any of that support. And I think certainly what we're probably going to see on our next Times Radio focus groups in the, in, the, in the new year, Matt, is actually probably voters now no longer giving Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt. The default position no longer being sympathy for the challenges he faces during a pandemic, but actually snapping to a much uh, faster judgment. So, I mean, I would, I would agree with Kate and Gavin, you know, there, there is a chance to turn this round. Um, Labour still does have severe brand issues um, that will mean that a lot of voters are still not moving immediately into the Labour camp. Um, but Boris Johnson is going to have to show a very different sort of leadership style and I think is going to really have to show these voters, um, as well as his MPs, uh, that he's learning the lessons of this by-election and, and, and changing. James Johnson, thank you for that. Um, Gavin Barwell and uh, Kate Fall, I just want to ask you, where were you on the sort of spectrum? Gavin, uh, Charles Walker was giving Boris Johnson a year to sort himself out. Roger Gale, another Tory MP, saying it's one strike and he's out. What's your sense of how long he's got uh, to show that he's sort of back on top, probably ahead of the polls, you know, has turned things around? What's the timescale for you? Gavin Barwell, first of all. It's a really difficult question to answer, Matt. I think, look, First of all, if there was another big self-inflicted wound early in the new year, that could trigger everything. The, the mood among Tory MPs is pretty volatile at the moment. Uh, but I would have thought, absent that, 
the key thing people will look at is where are we in about six months time once we've had the, the elections in May, you know, the polls that James was talking about, do they all still look the same in six months time and do the Conservative Party get a bad set of elections in May? Or actually, if he's begun to recover his position in the polls and those elections aren't too bad, then things will calm down a bit. So I would have thought that's, I, I certainly agree with Charles, there's nothing imminent on the cards. It really depends on the news agenda early in the new year and whether we get any more of these kinds of stories. But absent that, I think you'll have a better feel in six months' time. Uh, Vani, UK4, what's your sense? Um, I, uh, my concern is sort of love actually answer is that, you know, the, the, the electorate really fell in love with Boris, rather like they fell in love with Blair. And then the danger for Boris is that they've sort of gone off him. And <laughs> once that is broken, it's, it's a big negative. And that doesn't happen to all leaders, but it did happen to Boris. So he has to be a bit careful coming into next year. So that's all of the political drama covered. What about all the salacious aristocratic drama? A very British scandal is going to be on BBC One on Boxing Day, telling the story of Margaret Argyle and her sensational, salacious divorce trial. We'll hear from the writer, Sarah Phelps, in just a moment. But first, let's take a listen to it in all its saucy detail. He's a married man, carrying on as if he isn't. Ian Campbell, Duke of Argyle, Margaret Campbell, Duchess of Argyle. I've read so much about you. I feel I know you. Do you? Everything is about sex. I like it very much, and I'm extremely good at it. How many men have you got? How many women have you got? Every morning, I wonder which Ian I'm going to wake up to. You're drunk last night, you're drunk now. Here's the thought, Margaret. Pay the bills. It's what you're for. We have to stop doing terrible things to each other. What terrible things have you done? I present the Duke of Argyle's petition for divorce. He doesn't care about affairs. The only thing he cares about is destroying me. He doesn't get to divorce me. I get to divorce him. Can you prove it? Do you have the photograph? Because I do. I meet men. I dine with men. Doesn't follow that I have affairs with every single man that I meet. Only so many hours in the day. Wowzers, wowzers. So that is Claire Foy playing the Duchess of Argyle in a very British scandal. It's going to be on, uh, I think, from Boxing Day with three nights uh, this Christmas. Well, let's speak to the writer behind the series, Sarah Phelps. Hi, Sarah. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm slightly conscious of our conversation. We're going to be very careful with the conversation because it is quarter to 12 in the morning um and there's 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 quite a lot of adult content in this story isn't there um uh, explain for people who don't know the story of this incredible divorce trial that went on between the duke and duchess of argyle well they margaret uh duchess of argyle was one of the most celebrated stylish beauties and celebrities of her of her time she literally stopped traffic when she got when she got married. She was everywhere she went. She was incredibly talked about. And after her divorce from the uh, American Charles Sweeney, she and she met uh, Ian Campbell, who was the who was to inherit the Duchy of Argyll, and he was absolutely penniless. And Inverara Castle was pretty much um, falling down, and there was absolutely no money, and they married, and Margaret rebuilt it all with her fortune and became a duchess, and then all the wheels came off their relationship, and lots of things 
kind of add in to why Ian decided he wanted to divorce her. But he burgled her house and found her diaries. And he also found hidden amongst her possessions some photos which would become incredibly famous, notorious photos, Polaroid photos and a Polaroid cameras were they were rarer than hen's teeth at the time. And these showed Margaret in um, a, what I will describe nicely because it's before lunch. Um, an well, she was performing an act, shall we say, a very famous uh, or what would become an extremely famous act. And it was very clearly her. She was wearing her pearls and her rings. And this formed the kind of central part of um, this absolutely brutal divorce and this absolutely brutal divorce judgment as well. And Margaret became known for it ever after. Massively scandalous because... You know, up to this point, the aristocracy, the wealthy, the entitled had been sort of shrouded in this sort of rarefied secrecy about what their lives were like. And Margaret, in refusing to go quietly, as she was pretty much ordered and expected to do, just absolutely blew the lid off the omerta of the upper classes. And she made everything very, very public. This divorce made all the li all the lives of the rich and famous and the aristocracy and the entitled and those not far away from the throne extremely visible and people would read about it over their breakfasts. Uh, so. Yeah, uh, uh, the, what was so sort of um, sensational about those photos, although she was in the photos, uh, like you said, wearing only a pearl, yes. Um, the 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 man in the photo yeah. uh, receiving the the. Act, the the act, uh, the act was the act. Uh, only visible from the waist down, so there was yeah, massive you, speculation you about who who the man was. You couldn't see his head at all, and it was sort of because of the angle of the photo. And there was endless, endless, endless sort of like who who is it, who is it? And there's a particularly kind of uh, unpleasant sort. Of, well, I think you might think it's unpleasant. I thought it was hilarious, the sort of trick that Margaret pulled on Ian during the um, divorce case, which required Ian to be kind of. Uh, examined by an expert in uh, in the downstairs area um <laughs> oh God, it's really hard to talk about without it's sort of it's like, turned into a carry on film this but, but yeah, more quickly but, than i was but, expecting but, but yeah but to but prove he really, that he, he was became, not in the picture he, he was not the headless comparisons man, the had man to be made yeah the 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 man became known as the headless man the duchess and the headless man and um, all of the speculation was about the identity of who this headless man was whether it was a member of the cabinet whether it was um an american industrialist whether it was a movie star whoever it was but it was all about him and the conversation has always been who that man was and i never ever ever gave um I didn't care about the identity of the man. I cared about her. I cared about who she was. And and so that's what this drama is about, really. This is a drama is about, like, who was she, this woman who was the most, who was so famous and so sort of beloved in a sort of society context to sort of suddenly have everything turn against her and having always been the most photographed woman in the world, this photograph would bring her down. But I only wanted to know who she was, not who the identity of the man was. Although there's a little kind of footnote to it, which just makes your eyebrows shoot up and makes you wonder <laughs> who it was. So, so I was looking through, looking through your CV, you've done, well, EastEnders, 
I mean, mm-hmm. bringing back dirty, bringing back dirty den it, in and of itself is it must be a career high. But a lot of your, a lot of things have been sort of fictional adaptations, whether it's Agatha Christie, um, uh, Charles Dickens, even J.K. Rowling and the Casual Vacancy. So, what made you want to take a real life story and put that on screen? What's the appeal and what's the challenge of doing that? Well, I've always been really fascinated by um, by Margaret, really, because I, I'd never heard of her until I was doing this. Uh, you know, it's about 1993 and I was doing this job that I was so bad at, which was selling advertising space in magazines. And the guy sitting next to me as we ripped through the papers looking for leads and sort of pitches said, oh, she's dead. And like, well, who's dead? And he said, uh, Margaret, the Dirty Duchess. And he couldn't believe that I'd never heard of her. And it was from sort of reading her obituary way back then, looking at this photograph of this woman with this huge kind of sculpted wig and this sort of rather rapacious, furious, imperious look. And I just thought, well, I, I was just fascinated by her. And when um, Dominic Treadwell Collins, who I'd worked with at EastEnders and who had uh, one of the people who'd made um, The Incredible, A Very English Scandal, he got in touch with me and said, were we going to do another one? Would you like to do a scandal? What do you think about Madame Sin and the kind of, you know, the little suburban brothel? And I absolutely don't want to do that. I want to, and before I'd even thought of it, I just said, I want to do Margaret Duchess of Argyll just because I've been fascinated by the story and it seems so so pertinent and so brutal and there was such a sort of gallows black comedy to it all and heartbreak and damage and trouble and it, I, I just was just obsessed with the story and it was really exciting to I don't know yeah you're right I do a lot I've done a lot of I've done a lot of adaptations and it was exciting to sort of write it from the basis of I don't have a book I don't have a book to go on what I have is court transcripts and tabloid headlines that's what I'm that's what I'm working on and extrapolating everything backwards to tell the story of this marriage that went so sour and um, it was tough I won't lie because we were doing it during the time of Covid and that was um, it was sort of you're sitting there writing and thinking hang on a minute is the world going to end am I am I going to sort of <laughs> die and, and and then my and and my dogs will eat my face and nobody will know or care and so that was that was kind of weird and tough but I really did enjoy just not having a book to go on just my own kind of mild you know yeah it, and, and the obsession with her just sort of grew and the obsession with Ian and the fascination with them and I just felt it it was exciting. It was exciting to do something that didn't have a book. Well, I've been lucky enough. I've watched the first episode, which sort of sets it all up, and we get to the point of basically. I have to say, at the end of the first episode, I wasn't sure I liked either of them particularly. They they both good <laughs> entered the um uh they both you know they're both in this very unhappy marriage, and they you think well yeah you've 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 got you've come up and it's already really just being stuck in that unhappy marriage. But tell me this from a point of advice, and knowing that I was speaking to you, I was sat there thinking. And this particularly came along where there's a moment where she, after her first divorce, she's she's standing outside the court and she's speaking to her now ex-husband and having a conversation. They sort of say goodbye to it. And I suddenly thought, without a book or a memoir or something to play on, how do you how do you go about sort of telling the story while sort of imagining all of the those conversations and deciding who we should feel sympathy for and who we don't? Because you've got quite a lot of power in your hands there when you're but they're real people. They're not just yeah, your imagination. yeah they're real people and they also have living relatives so you've got to sort of bear that in mind but you've also got to be I think 
well, the same as the, the same approach I take to anything, which is you just have to write the mess of people's lives. People's lives are really, really messy and contradictory. And there's never one thing where somebody's one person is a hero and one person is a villain. You have to kind of think about the way that their lives end up and you can kind of take it backwards from there. For example, you know, you're seeing you're talking about Charles Sweeney and uh, Margaret remained close they you know even after their divorce right up right up to death they remained close they remained friendly and so you can sort of like with that knowledge you can sort of feed it into the sort of like the scenes that you're writing and it's sort of you know I never wanted one person to be bad and one person to be good because that's just well, that's just boring and it's not drama and the truth is that neither of them are Margaret does terrible things Ian does terrible things um Margaret does fierce and courageous things Ian does strange things but he's not he did (laughs) I mean I mean he did bad 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 things but I just don't think he's a villain because that kind of takes away from the internal kind of turmoil of who of who he was as a man um you know a really strange life produces a, a really strange childhood and a terrible terrible war produces generally strange people I think and the sense of entitlement but also of being an imposter the entitled imposter is a very very strange dynamic for one man to be yeah, carrying yeah, yeah. and it really comes out in his in his behavior now one um you mentioned that they've, they've obviously still got relatives but they involved at all did you speak to them have they seen it are they happy oh, unhappy they re- well, I think that they're. I think that they're happy. I think that there's been so much about it in the past, but I was very clear about the take that I wanted to, that I wanted, which wasn't really about a sort of sniggering prurience. I'm. I, that's you know, I am. A, yeah. You know, it, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell a much bigger story about. Oh, I don't know what happens when you kick over the traces. What happens when you when you kind of go against the prevailing sort of ethos of your class which is look just pay up keep your mouth shut and go away and that you know every just just do what you're told and that she was Margaret is very much somebody who would not do what she was told and there's sort of like the fallout from that and how that can I don't know how you're almost on the cusp of a a social and a cultural a sexual revolution by the time that you get to this divorce in 1963 margaret and ian are all over the tabloids you know the aristocracy being laid bare, laid out as barefoot animal and the next people that are going to be all over the tabloids are christine keeler mandy rice davis and profumo it's it's just a feeling that it's just the beginning of a complete revolution that's going to happen yeah in britain it's it was it felt really exciting yeah, that, that that sort of turned you right, and even oh, the, yes. the the fact that the, the tip from the fifties to the sixties that feels like yeah. a big, that feels it's like a big. A huge... the... Sorry, it's a huge thing. What I was going to say about the families though is that the exteriors of Inverara Castle in the show are actually Inverara Castle, oh, and wow. the current uh, the current Duke and Duchess of Argyll, who are Ian's Ian's grandson. They were really happy for us to film the exteriors, which was amazing. And I, I because of COVID, I couldn't go on location. Um, oh, yeah, but when we were telling them, when, when they were being told about the project, they sort of looked around the castle they live in and went, it's because of her we've got bathrooms. And you sort of think that there, <laughs> is, a, <laughs> there is a legacy there. Every time you, every, every time you flush the toilet or, or run a bath, you think, thank you, Margaret. It's still there. 
It's still it's there. Still there. No, the, the, it's the one thing that I found a bit odd watching it was Claire Foy is, is terrific playing Margaret, but because she played the Queen in The Crown and is doing a sort of, you know, she's Claire Foy being posh, and yet, but the character is so, you know, is, is a bit raunchy. It felt a bit weird because is it the Queen being raunchy? That was what was slightly going that. through it's my head. Kind of, uh... As a kind of glimpse into your hinterland, I, 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 <laughs> we can we can we can talk about this. We can discuss. We can this we can, we can work I'm through that. To. We can work through yeah. that. So um, it's on on Boxing Day uh, from nine o'clock on BBC One over three nights. Um, so that's all done and dusted in the can. Have you got another real life story that you'd like to turn your attention to? I'm in the middle of working on it at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, but this is a um, and. This is a very, very different story. It's very, very recent. It's a, it's a murder story. It's and it's very, very sad. Um, and you know, I quite like jokes. I quite like silly jokes. And I sort of think, keep doing murders and keep doing terrible things to people. What's wrong with me? Just must be something about my face. But yeah, I'm already in the middle of my next, my next project. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.